Beloved, if you would, would you turn in God's holy word to 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, beginning at verse 1, the prelude to a showdown, the prelude to a showdown. In chapter 17, verse 1, God had sent his prophet Elijah, the wild man, you can imagine what he looked like, you can only... uh, creatively think in your mind what he must have looked like after three years of famine. But to announce a famine, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You see, Israel had abandoned her God. She had been the unfaithful wife. And she had embraced other lovers. Those lovers being Baal particularly. And as a result, the heavens became like bronze. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen had warned the people, Take care lest your hearts be deceived, that you turn aside to other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you will shout and, the, and I, he will shut the heavens, so there will be no rain. Well shortly thereafter we know that after that pronouncement there was no rain, and God called Elijah to go to Kareth to be ministered there by ravens and at the brook. And then shortly after that, to go to Zarephath, Baal's backyard, where he had a widow, of all things, a Gentile widow who was going to care for the prophet of God. Well, now we fast forward three years after Elijah first appeared before Ahab, and we come to the word once again reappearing before Ahab. The famine will soon end, and all Israel is about to find out who is the God who sends rain. So let's pick up with that word of context now, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the living God. After many days, the word of the Lord Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe or strong, literally in the Hebrew, in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And then we have this little parenthetical statement there in verse 3 to tell us a little more about Obadiah. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets literally murdering the prophets, we'll see subsequently, of the Lord Yahweh, Isaiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he, Obadiah, answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord or master, Behold, Elijah is here. And he, Obadiah, said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? 
As the Lord Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he, that is Elijah, is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone with you, the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh will carry you I know not where. And so, when I come to tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord Yahweh from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord Yahweh? How I hid a hundred of men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord Yahweh of hosts or armies lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord Yahweh and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The prelude to the showdown. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Our Lord and our God, we don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth, you sustain all of life by the word, that word being our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, God-Man who sits at your right hand. Come and enable me to make much of you, Lord Jesus Christ. May I decrease, may you increase, may your people be fed your word, may they be stretched rebuked, encouraged, and built up, cut that you might heal, restore us into the very image of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, through your means of grace this day, as we look upon him, the prophet to whom Elijah pointed, whom Obadiah pointed, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we all love a showdown, do we not? Whether that's in a piece of literature, a book, or a movie. And I was thinking this week, an illustration that I enjoy, a showdown, is that showdown that's in Return of the King and Peter Jackson's rendering of Tolkien's The King Returns. You have Aragorn's final speech, Aragorn's final speech. The Aragorn is also known as Strider. He's the guy on the horse. And let me paint the picture for you a little bit. He's just come from the gates of Black Gate, and he's got the, the minions of Sauron, the, the great evil that is. And he's told him that the lines of the battle are going to be drawn, and now Aragon drives back, and he rides up and down the lines of the battle lines of the people of Gondor and Rohan. And this is what he says 
at this final battle against Saron, riding on his horse. It's a beautiful scene. It's a powerful scene. He says to those men, Hold your ground. Hold your ground, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails. When we seek our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you to stand, men of the West. It's a powerful scene. You can go home today on YouTube and watch it. It's powerful. But we love showdowns, and I love that particular showdown. And there are tons of showdowns in the Old Testament. The showdown between Moses and Pharaoh at the Red Sea when God delivers His people. We're told that the Lord has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. We can picture those dead Egyptians floating there in the Red Sea as the people of God are delivered miraculously. Or the story of Gideon and his army of 300 valiant men and the victory God gave him over the Midianites. Or probably the, the one we post, most likely think of when we think of showdowns is the showdown of, of David, right? The psalm singer who goes out and feats the uncircumcised Philistine Goliath. You see, all of these, unlike Tolkien's story, were actual historical events. They literally happened when God raised up a leader, a mediator, who would go out and fight God's battles, defeating God's enemies and the enemies of His people. Well, here in 1 Kings 18, the, the prophet Elijah stands against the prophets of Baal, and they will gather at Mount Carmel to answer the question once and for all. You see, that's where everything's heading, is to this climax of this great showdown. Who is the God who brings rain? Who is the living God? Is it Baal? Then you serve Him. Is it secularism? Is it scientism? Is it materialism? Is it Hinduism? Is it Buddhism? Is it Islam? Or is it Jesus Christ? Stop wavering. Stop vacillating between the two. But decide for yourself whom you will serve, you and your house. But as for me and my house, to quote Joshua, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God-man who bled and died for His people, the valiant King who delivers me from all of my enemies. Well, today, before we get to the the fire that will fall there at Mount Carmel, let's look at this prelude to a showdown under two headings. The preparation for the showdown, the, the preparation for the showdown, verses 1 to 16, and then the proposal for the showdown in verses 17 to 19. So first, the, the preparation for the showdown in verses 1 to 16. After three years of drought, the Word of God once again comes to Elijah in verse 1, go show yourself to Ahab, for I will send rain upon the earth. And again, in obedience, Elijah obeys the Lord. Unlike Israel, but like the widow of Zarephath, there is a remnant even in the apostasy that obeys the word of God. Just like today, there's always a remnant. There was a remnant in Noah's day. There's a remnant in our day. There was a remnant in Elijah's day. 
And we're told, verse 2, we're given a little commentary on just how bad things had gotten. There in Samaria, we're told that the famine was severe. And I thought to myself, now most of us don't know what it's like to live through a famine. Right? We really have no idea. Nor can we imagine how bad it was. Right? The scarcity of food, water, no ability to even bathe. Right? Just three days and you're like, I, I have to take a shower. But three years without water. There's no Publix. There's no Kroger. Right? There's nothing. The people are desperate. They're famished. You get the pictures of barrenness and arid conditions, right? The tumbleweed blowing on the desert, right? Even this week, I was reminded of a war zone in Ukraine. I, I, I heard this week that the, the Russian soldiers are so depleted, they're eating the, the zoo animals there in Ukraine. They're, they're eating zebras and ostriches and bears and so forth and so on. They're just starving. That's what's happening here. That's the, that's the picture here. What the Word of God wants us to see, it's, it's severe. It's strong, as I said when I read the text. It's a strong famine. It's consuming everything. You see, Baal, the supposed sun, a storm god, has failed. And no doubt the people had become desperate. And yet, you get the impression, do you not, that in Ahab's house, he, he's living high on the hog. Right? There, there are prophets sitting at his table. The prophets of Baal and Asherah are sitting there the very table of the king of Israel. That's how bad it had gotten. And notice that the hardship in the kingdom did very little to soften Ahab's heart. Notice how he he cares for horses. He cares for mules, right? He doesn't care for the people. He doesn't care for the people that God had given him to rule over and reign over. His only concern is to soften the blow of judgment, to take away the sting of sin, to remove himself, to isolate himself, to, re- to remove the, the bad consequences he was now reaping. You see, such is the heart of every man apart from God's grace. That's your heart, right? It's so easy to sit in judgment on Elijah. I'm never like Elijah. Oh, beloved, you're more like Elijah. Or rather, have than you think you are. We're all Elijahs. From the womb we go astray, you see. We all want to mitigate the consequences of our decisions, particularly when they're in error and the sin. It's fruit, attending fruit. Such is the heart of every man, like Ahab. But in verse 3, we're introduced to a little bright light in the midst of the darkness. In Satan's backyard, right there, God has his man. Obadiah, his name means servant of Yahweh. We're told he's the chief household administrator, right? He's in charge. He's the chief of staff. But more importantly, we're told that Obadiah, this servant of Yahweh, feared the Lord. How did he fear him? He feared him greatly, much. That's a shocking statement, right? Here's a servant of Yahweh, imperfect as he is, right? Imperfect, working in the very heart of Ahab and Jezebel's reign, right there in Satan's backyard. Now, some commentators see Obadiah as a sellout, believe it or not. They don't believe Obadiah as someone to be emulated. I don't believe that to be the case. I see Obadiah as a risk-taking servant of Yahweh who, in spite of real fear, served the Lord. You see, he demonstrates for us real courage, what courage looks like. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. 
The brave man is not he who does not fear, but he who conquers that fear by faith. He serves faithfully his God in the midst of a wicked people. And we're told in, twice in verses 4 to 13 about his courage, how this, this faith always was made manifest. Notice what he does. He provides shelter in hiding for a hundred prophets, 50 in each cave, bread and water, with the scarcity that is. How did he do it? I don't know. How did the widow do it? I don't know. I can't explain it. It's miraculously God is enabling Obadiah to save the prophets. But Ahab, the king of Israel, is saving horses. The man of God is saving the prophets of God. But the king of Israel is saving horses. And we're told after Ahab and Obadiah split up to look for water for the horses, Ahab goes in one direction by himself. And Elijah, Obadiah rather, goes in the other. And as Obadiah was on the way, we're told in verse 7, Behold, Elijah met him. Elijah instructs him to go and tell Ahab that Elijah wants to meet. Notice what Obadiah says, right? Every time the man of God shows up, just like the widow there in Zarephath earlier, How have I sinned? Right? (laughs) How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? You see, Ahab has searched the world over looking for Elijah, but has not found him. And Obadiah knows that Elijah has a way of appearing and disappearing unannounced, without warning. The Spirit of the Lord will will carry you quickly away, right? Portending to that great chapter there in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. You see, Obadiah is fearful that Elijah will suddenly disappear again. A second time he fears for his life. But Elijah reassures him in verse 15, As Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And by faith we're told in verse 16, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now wouldn't you like to have been a fly on that wall to see that encounter between these two? This weak, overcoming faith, right, no doubt, in trepidation, yet in faith, getting the victory, standing before the wicked queen, king Ahab. You see, while Obadiah feared Ahab, who could take his life, he greatly feared Yahweh, the God who could cast his soul into hell. And I wonder if we fear God that way greatly. Are we really ready to risk something for the Lord Jesus Christ? But before I unpack that a little more, look at this, I wanted to stop and just compare these two servants, Obadiah and Elijah, and show the, the two ways that you can serve God, or at least two ways you can serve God. You see, not all are called to the ministries of Elijah, right? Not all of us are called to prominent ministries, to speaking ministries, but all of us are called to serve Yahweh, the way Yahweh has gifted us and the place Yahweh has placed us. You see, Obadiah has a ministry that's very unassuming, it's very quiet, Ralph Davis says this about these two. Elijah's ministry is more public. It's out front. It's more confrontational. Obadiah, on the other hand, works quietly and is yet faithful in the sphere where God has placed him. The Bible never tells us that there's only one kind of faithful servant. It never demands that you must be like Elijah, that you must be an Elijah clone. 
And as only Ralph Davis could say it, faithfulness is never so dull that it only comes in one flavor. You see, you can serve God the way you're made, the way God has gifted you. We see this in our own congregation, do we not? God uses all kinds of saints in the right places, places tailor-made by Yahweh for his saint in that particular context. Places made exactly for them. You see, Obadiah is like the man working for an unbelieving boss. And evidently, he's found himself in that position because he did a good job. He was a man of excellence, a man of hard work. You see, and as Christians, we can learn from that as well, that example. You see, these things are given for our example, for our edification, for our encouragement. We need to be the very best students we can be. Does that mean you need to be an A student? Well, if you have A gifts, you better be an A student. If you have B gifts, go at it hard. If you're a C student, get a tutor. Keep working hard. Be the best that you can be. Let it be known. Let it be known for excellence in all that you do. As Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You see, Obadiah used his position and his resources as one who modeled, who adorned the gospel, adorned his fidelity and his faith, was seen in the way that he conducted himself in that house. And he used the resources that God had given him to further God's kingdom, to protect those hundred prophets. You see, beloved, God can use brooks, he can use ravens, but he delights to use ordinary folks. He delights to use the Obadiahs of the world. People like you and people like me, imperfect saints that we are, who in obedience will trust God even in the face of great danger. You see, we need grace to stand for the light and for the truth in this dark age, right? You need need grace to stand for biblical marriage, biblical sexuality, the dignity of all life, willing willing to risk to being canceled, to being mocked, to be spit upon, to be scorned, all for the name. It's for no reason that Paul says, for I am not ashamed. Why would he say that? You think about that. Why would Paul say that? Why would he tell Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel? Is it because Paul is full of bravado? He says in Corinth, he comes to them in weakness and fear and trembling. So what is he saying? Why is he saying, be not ashamed? Do you know why? Because you will be ashamed. The potential to be ashamed of the foolishness of the gospel that says all men are without hope apart from the saving mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's foolishness and folly to an unbelieving world. It takes courage, spirit-wrought courage to, to stand, to not cower, to not be afraid to be canceled by the culture, right? to, to stand against the cultural winds that no longer blow behind your back. At one time, they were blowing behind our back in the church. But they're no longer behind our back. They're in our face. And are you going to stand? Are you going to remain faithful? Right? The temptation is to be ashamed. Those Christians, they're just simpletons. They believe in myths. They're foolish. They're idiots. I hear this. Do you not hear this in the news? Keep your thoughts to yourself. Keep your fables to yourself. Keep Jesus over there. Don't bring him into the marketplace. 
They want to intimidate you. To silence you. You see, to the world, our message seems weak and pathetic. And humanly speaking, it is weak and it is pathetic, humanly speaking. But the apparent weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, beloved, we need grace to stand, even imperfectly as Obadiah stood there in Ahab's court. In Satan's very backyard, Obadiah was willing to risk it all. It wasn't easy for Obadiah. And we can also take encouragement in this, right? That that God has his saints exactly where he wants them now. You think to yourself, you see, God even has saints in Washington, D.C. Yes, I know, it's hard to believe. He has them there who are faithfully serving the kingdom of God right where he has them. Well, having looked at the preparation for the showdown, look at the proposal for the showdown in verses 17 and 19. Elijah, after passing all those most wanted signs there, as he makes his way from Zarephath back to Samaria, right? he appears before Ahab. Ahab sees Elijah and says to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? You think, oh, the irony. Who's the troubler of Israel? It's not Elijah. It's Ahab. Ahab's the troubler of Israel. But rather than accept responsibility for the famine, Ahab looks for someone to blame. Right? He blames the prophet. And this shouldn't surprise us, should it? 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised that the world hates you. The world is going to hate you. It's not going to find you and your message attractive, appealing, dynamic, wonderful, just longing to be received. Oh, please tell me about how I'm an object of wrath without hope apart from Jesus Christ. No, that's not, the world's not chomping at the bit to hear that. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, it's often the case with God's people when the consequences of sin are felt and experienced by the unbelieving world, the world will often turn and point the finger at the church. See, the hour is coming, Jesus says, whoever kills you will think they're offering a service to God. The Apostle Paul himself in the book of Acts, accused by the religious leaders in Acts 24.5, this man is a plague. Christians are fascist. They want to suppress my spiritual and my sexual freedom. Beloved, that's what we're being told. 24-7, 24-7, 365, that's the milieu, that's where waters we're swimming in. We're the problem. That's why we want to deconstruct all the institutions God has established like marriage. Why marriage? Because marriage is the one place God said, this is the place I'm going to show my relationship to my people right here in this very institution. How I love them and how they love and respect me. Why wouldn't Satan have that to be bullseye number one, seeking to destroy. 
Are we going to stand like Obadiah, like Elijah? Are we willing to be called a plague? I look at you and I don't see plague. But the world thinks our message is a plague. This man is one who stirs up riots throughout the world. You see, to those who love the kingdom of darkness, believers are troublemakers. The church father, Tertullian, this has always been the case. We've had a little reprieve here for about 230 years in these United States. We've been living off the capital of our forefathers. But that capital's been spent. That ship has sailed. The culture at large, the unbelieving world, thinks this about the church, just like Tertullian's saying. He's saying, if the Tiber rises too high, the Tiber's a river, or the Nile too low, the cry is, the Christians to the lions. That's what they were saying in Tertullian's day. To the lions. Take them to the lions. They're the plague of the earth. They're the scourge, the scum of the world. Calvin wrote his institutes to defend the Reformation against those who said the Protestants were lawless troublemakers. That's why he wrote it, to defend the church, that the church might be strengthened to stand fast in an evil day. So don't be surprised, right? To say this about our Lord, Luke 23, Jesus before his accusers. This is what they said about the Son of God. We found this man to mislead our nation. He stirs up the people. You see, when you're faithful to Jesus and you stand for truth, it's going to bring division. Jesus provokes a response. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword for or against. Allegiance to Jesus will bring with it accusations from the unbelieving world. Remember the word Jesus said to his disciples that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This is the day and hour for men and women, boys and girls, who follow Jesus Christ to stand. To not be cantankerous and be offensive in ourself and our own personality, but the message that we carry... The fragrance that we bear is a fragrance of death and condemnation to the world at large. It is what it is. Notice Elijah's response to Ahab, verse 18. It's not I who has troubled Israel, but it is you. This you here is singular masculine. It's you, Ahab. You and you alone are the troubler of Israel. You and your father's house. And then he gives two reasons. Notice the two reasons that he gives. And I found this interesting. Notice it was the sin of omission and the sin of commission. The sin of omission, notice what it is. You have abandoned the commandments of God. Elijah He's speaking to Ahab, telling Ahab, Ahab, you have not been what God has called you to be. You have not measured up. You have not been conformed to 
the law of God, conformed to his very image as it's seen in that law. There's the lack of conformity unto. Typically, I think we always think, what, is, what have we done? What have we transgressed? But God talks about sins of omission, caring for the widow, caring for the poor, the orphan, keeping oneself unspotted from the world. This is the religion our Father in heaven finds acceptable. Oh, now you're preaching. Better dial it back. That's the religion the Father loves. And notice the sins of commission, right? You've followed Baals. You've bought into the lie. You're being conformed to the spirit of the age, the spirit of Baal worship, or secular materialism, or whatever the God of this age is, right? And I was reminded last week by my faithful brother, you know, I, I said last week that Baal is a no-God. In, in the ultimate sense, Baal is a no-God. But know this, behind all idolatry, now listen, behind all idolatry are demonic forces. Principalities and powers. Paul calls them stoicheia, right? Elementary spirits. The world we live in is ablaze with supernatural, Right? Right? We're so materialistic, we, we start to function as the world. We start to forget that this is a supernatural existence. And the God of this age, we're told, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age, i.e. the ruler, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, has blinded the minds of unbelievers in unbelief. They see not God. You can give them all the evidence you want to give them. You can give them Josh McDowell, Josh McDowell's whole body of work. It's not a problem of evidence. Every single molecule in the universe testifies to the glory of God. They know God by the things that have been made, even His Godhead. So they are without excuse, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they love sin. You love sin. I love sin. Save for grace. See, we're more like Ahab than we think we are. But notice Ahab. Notice then rather than repent, right? Again, he's not sorry for what he's done. He doesn't have a, a broken and contrite heart. He's not sorry because against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O God. Have mercy on me, a sinner, as you beat your breast and you can't even lift it to heaven. Notice what he's sorry for. He's sorry for the consequences. Right? Rather than seek the God who he's offended through repentance and seek forgiveness, Ahab only looks for relief from the situation. And we think to ourselves, if only Israel had a king. If only Israel had a king who would not look to blame others. Or look to be served, but to serve. That his people might be forgiven and set free from the power of sin. You see, beloved, the heart of Christianity is that such a king has been given. This king has been given by the Father in the fullness of time who was born of a virgin under the law to redeem those under the law that we might become the children of God. 
that we, like Ahab, haters of God, shaking our fist at God, might become beloved friends and sons of God by grace. You see, friends, God has sent His Son for a showdown into the world. And only God the Son could win this showdown. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And saints at Calvary, fire fell. But not on bulls, but on Christ. That He, the Son of God, might become sin for us, that we in Him might become the righteous of God. The section concludes there in verse 19 with Elijah commanding Ahab. Notice where it's going to be held there at Mount Carmel. You know where Mount Carmel is? Right down the street from Zarephath. And what was it, Zarephath? Baal's backyard. So Elijah is saying, anything and everything that I can marshal against God, the living God, I'm going to do it because I want you to know without equivocation who is God. So I'm going to give home field advantage to Baal. We're going to play in your stadium, Baal. There's going to be one of me, and there's going to be 400 prophets of Asherah and 450 prophets of Baal. So 850 versus 1. The battle lines are being drawn up. And notice where those prophets are eating. They're eating at Jezebel's table. That's how wicked things have gotten. So the showdown is on, right? Israel is about to find out who is the God who answers with fire. We'll see that next time as we look at the showdown itself. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that you save the ungodly, that by grace you make the ungodly righteous, not through the law, not through the works of our hands, not through religious rites, but through the righteousness that's now been revealed from heaven to which the law and the prophets testify, the righteousness that is by faith, faith alone in Christ alone. And it is in that righteousness we stand. It is in that righteousness we come into the Holy of Holies to thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for so great a righteousness, so great a salvation. Bless now the meal that you have given to feed us and to strengthen us in that very righteousness, that righteousness imputed in credit to us by faith alone in Jesus alone. We pray now in your holy name. Amen.